Hello, everyone. Today, I'm here with Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, which recently raised a seed round from Andreessen Horowitz and is currently helping thousands of people stay healthy by tracking their glucose levels. Sam is also the founder of three previous companies, including Cardash, which went through Y Combinator in 2017 and has plenty of wisdom to share with us. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Today, I am with Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, also serial entrepreneur. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Good to be here. Uh, so first, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your background uh, as a serial entrepreneur. You've founded four companies, Cardash, one of them uh, went through YC or Y Combinator and was acquired by RepairSmith. Could you tell me a little bit about your key takeaways and learnings from these previous companies? Yeah, I mean, at, at each company, you, you learn something new um, and develop a lot of scar tissue. Um, so Sightline Maps was the company for Kardash, and Sightline was a topographical mapping company for primarily the U.S. military and special operations. There were several big learnings from it. One is that sales cycles are very real, that uh, when you're selling to large institutions, getting large payments once every couple of years, as opposed to small payments from customers on a consistent basis, is a it really does change the the way that you have to run your business, which I didn't have any experience with. And it was a really good learning experience. The other is uh, we raised money. That was the first company that I'd done that actually raised capital from uh, from venture. And we timed our fundraising around when we would run out of money uh, as opposed to when we had momentum or something else. So we ended up having a lot of issues on uh, the funding side just because we, it turns out cash is a, is a real asset when you're fundraising. If you don't need money, more people want to give it to you. Yeah. So, Seems, one of those lessons yeah. you learn the hard way. Seems like uh, that lesson helped you a lot at levels with your most recent fundraising. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and we we also took that lesson into Kardash. We, we raised, I, I think, six or seven million total at Kardash. Um, at levels, we, we just recently closed a $12 million seed round uh, led by Andreessen. And similarly, we really didn't need the capital, but uh, there's a lot that we can do with it. And uh, we have a lot of momentum right now. So I think the biggest lessons from Cardash was that it's really important to understand your sales channels. That was one of the biggest lessons. Uh, we, we saw a lot of organic traction early on. And then at a certain point, traction just kind of slowed down and we didn't know why. But at the same time, we also didn't know why we had traction to begin with. Um, so it was, uh, it was frustrating when you don't know what levers to pull because you don't know what levers there are to begin with. So that's another lesson learned that uh, we've taken into levels. Um, I think another is documentation and how important that is. Um, my team is probably sick of me saying this sort of stuff, but we, I put a lot of emphasis on team scalability. So it is maybe one full day per week of your job is to make sure that other people can do your job as well. So documentation and team scalability is extremely important. 
internal communications uh, within the team is something that is generally underinvested in uh, and is critically important. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine from college, uh, Andrew Jordan, who was early at Twilio. And uh, I, I asked him what, what courses, if you were to design an entrepreneurship course for college, we both went to Claremont, uh, what would be the core curriculum? And uh, he, the first thing that he said was creative writing, which uh, at first I thought that's kind of a weird thing as like your number one important thing. And when he was explaining why, he was saying that one of the hardest things in being in startup is getting your ideas from your head into something that you can communicate to other people. And it sounds like it's, it sounds like it should be intuitive and easy and it's really not. And it's, it is the source of most friction at companies that I've worked at is an ability to say, I have this idea for what this product should look like. And then taking it from there, I think he also suggested a drafting course from like, uh, like uh, I think they do it in like architecture class of how do you get ideas from your head onto paper and communicate that to other people. Uh, it's a really important skill. That's fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how that related to the origin of uh, levels. How did levels come to be uh, in the early days and how did you get those ideas from your brain onto paper? Yeah, I, I took a year off after Kardash and by take a year off, I mean, I was just working on things that were not generating revenue. So I wasn't, I didn't stop focusing on things. I think at one point I was working on 16 different projects uh, actively, just like dabbling in different things to try to explore what I wanted to do with my time. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in college can, uh, can relate to the, like, what do I want to do? <laughs> Sort of a, an open question. I, I was dabbling in a lot of different industries, a lot of different ideas, uh, working with a lot of different people. One that I was working on was in the like, soft skills training for corporate, uh, for corporate teams, like learning interpersonal skills. Um, working on that with my friend Brian Tobel. That was like a, one of the side projects to just see, is there a market here? Um, one of the things that I, I would say is generally, this is one of the things that you learn a lot more uh, as you get in, as you get deeper into startups is uh, there's that old saying, I think it's a real estate or uh, like restaurants that if you build it, they will come um, in, in the technology world. It's kind of the opposite of that. It's uh if they come, you will build it. <laughs> uh, if you have customers saying, I want to pay you money to do this thing, uh, you'll probably figure out a way to make it work. Um, so market discovery turns out to be a lot harder than actually building product. It's also, it's also just emotionally harder because building product is really fun. And uh, getting rejected constantly is not fun. <laughs> so you tend to avoid the thing that's hard because it's not fun. Uh, but it's actually the thing that gets you over the finish line. So I was, Lovells was one of a handful of projects that I was working on at the time. And uh, I, I started working on it with Josh, my now co-founder. And at a certain point, 
doing a lot of testing and uh, hustling my friends to try to sell them the product and see if they would buy it and seeing a lot of real traction early on and willingness to pay. People actually putting down money to pay for this, uh, even when it was like pre-product, just like selling them on the vision and give me $400. Maybe realize that maybe there's real potential here. Uh, this could be something that uh, becomes a much larger company. The, the turning point moment for me was when I, when I started digging into the scope of the problem of metabolic dysfunction and healthcare. Um, I wrote something about this in our, our secret master plan, which you can find on our blog. The fact that more than one in 10 people in the US is diabetic and it's increasing at an increasing rate. Uh, the, the cost of the healthcare system, the number of conditions that are related to metabolic dysfunction is pretty shocking. So, uh, when I realized that this is not only something that has real market opportunity, but is also incredibly important societally, that was what convinced me that I really needed to jump into it. Yeah. So on that point, I'd love to hear more about the research backed efficacy of levels. And as a newbie to this space, why glucose levels are so important to measure? Yeah. So for it's technology that's been available for diabetics for quite a while. Um, and it matters a lot to diabetics because if your numbers go too high or too low, you could die because your pancreas doesn't respond accordingly. Um, for a health-seeking person, glucose levels matter first and foremost because it affects the way that you feel. When you have hypo or hyperglycemic spikes and crashes, if you have a hypoglycemic crash, you're going to feel pretty weird. Like if you've ever eaten, I don't know, like a big... Uh, a big thing of fast food and then two hours later you had to take a nap <laughs> that's oftentimes a hypoglycemic crash that's your body telling you like what the hell are you doing <laughs> so uh it also affects mental clarity it affects those sorts of things on the health side glycemic variability and all these problems they cause other underlying metabolic conditions like insulin resistance uh which leads to things like weight gain uh, long-term poor diet leads to diabetes um can lead to other other metabolic conditions like uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there are a lot of both the the acute of how you feel throughout the day, but also the long-term effect uh, can affect your long-term health in a way that's very negative. Yeah, and I'm sure you're learning more about these health effects through your uh, medical advisory board. How have they helped you research these outcomes a little bit more? And uh, what benefits have you seen from that? Yeah, our, our medical advisory board is uh, it really currently consists mostly of researchers. Uh, ben Bickman, Dom Diagostino um, are, are full-time uh, academic researchers. And so they've been super, super helpful in uh, learning about what is possible in starting these clinical trials. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing a lot more clinical research over the next uh, probably year or two. Um, the a lot of it's really just been done by my co-founder, Dr. Casey Means. Uh, she uh, she's our co-founder and chief medical officer. She's a doctor from Stanford. Yeah. What what sort of benefits do you see from this research in the long run? Do you think it's more consumer facing and that like hey mm -hmm. like look our product works? Uh, is it for yourselves in the long run? Like where to move your product in different directions? Is this a little bit of both? Yeah, it's kind of all of the above. 
Um, some of it's also going to depend a lot on what the clinical outcomes actually show. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things that I I filtered for in the investors that we talked to is uh, I was pretty explicit that if we run these clinical trials and it turns out the product doesn't work, uh, I'm going to shut down the company. I'm not I'm not interested in yeah. selling snake oil. Yeah. So um, some people don't like hearing that. Other people really do like hearing that. So yeah, um, that was one of the big filters that we had. It's like, I'm, I'm here to solve this problem. I'm not here. I'm not particularly financially motivated. I, uh, everything I own is in a carry on bag upstairs. I'm, I'm pretty aggressive in terms of minimalism and staying focused on, on what matters. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then moving a little bit more towards like the mental health aspect of, uh, glucose and levels. Could you tell me a little bit about the relationship uh, there between physical and mental health? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the biggest, uh, one of the most common things that we hear from our customers is that glycemic variability, again, the, the spikes and crashes caused by high sugar diets mostly. One of the things our customers tell us is how surprised they are that uh, their mood is so tightly connected with uh, how stable their glucose numbers are. So if they if they have a flat glucose line, uh, it means that you're you're eating things that are not causing these big fluctuations, and uh, they found that their mood is much more stable and uh, they're happier during that time. Whereas when they have these spikes and crashes, they feel hungry, they feel tired, they feel their their mood changes quite a lot. Um, there's also we we wrote a, a blog post on uh, anxiety and depression as it relates to diet and. That's a pretty well understood thing that uh, diet is a major contributing factor to uh, to uh, mood disorders like depression and anxiety. So um, the specific clinical outcomes will be something that we have to show in uh, in our clinical research. But there's a, a lot of research that already indicates that diet is a huge component to that. Well, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to hear more of that research. Now, moving on to your fundraising, which we touched on a bit earlier. Congratulations on raising your seed round of $12 million from Andreessen Horowitz and others. You mentioned you looked to raise early in the summer. What qualities were you looking for in an investor, and how did you come to choose Andreessen? Yeah, yeah, we, we started uh, the process basically in July, and we put the stake in the ground in July that we were going to be raising in September. So we, we gave ourselves a lot of time to meet and uh, talk to different investors. Um, the biggest thing, and this is a lot of it's from personal experience, but also through having spoken to a number of other entrepreneur friends of mine who started companies and have gone down this path, that uh, the partner, partner dynamics are the most important thing. So uh, the firm, there are pluses and minuses to each firm. But the thing that really matters is that the partner that you're working with is somebody that you really connect with. And in our case, uh, Jeff Jordan is somebody that uh, he's our, our uh, we have both Jeff Jordan and VJ at, uh, at Andreessen. And Jeff had been really helpful for us, actually. He made several connections even before they were investors just because he liked what we were doing. Um, his daughter is a diabetic. He uh, his wife is really involved in the diabetes nonprofit world. Uh, he's personally really, really interested in the space. Um, so we just, we, uh, it, it was an obvious fit just from a, a partner perspective. So that was the thing that we really indexed on was 
uh, really good relationship with the partner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now moving on to the advice related portion of the podcast. I know it's a tough question, but if you could give one piece of advice to your college self, what would that be? No, it's not a tough question. It's something I've thought a lot about. Um, I was actually, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine recently about how looking back at the, the Venn diagram of overlap between my college self and my today self, they maybe touch at like a tangent point. <laughs> There's so, I, my, I was such a different person back then. And um, one of the things, there, there's a book that I read somewhere recently that uh, I wish I had read when I was in college. Uh, it's actually Andrew Yang's book, uh, Smart People Should Build Things. And it, I, I found it so relatable. Uh, he talks a lot about the, uh, and I went to Claremont where basically everybody goes into finance or consulting. And he talks about the social pressure of going into finance and like everything in that book. I remember just thinking, I remember exactly having these conversations. The, uh, I, I would say that the biggest one would be that the, the cost of making poor decisions is a lot less than you think it is, uh, when you're younger and that it's worth taking big swings. Um, for the most part, I very nearly went into investment banking. I was like this close. I was doing the interviews um, and I just decided against it. Um, mostly, I, I was somewhat lucky in that I, I have a bunch of friends who are older than me and I, I talked to them about what's it like going into investment banking. And uh, a lot of them had been through the 2008 financial crisis and um, after roughly 10 in a row said, I hate my life, you shouldn't do this. <laughs> I thought, man, <laughs> that is a lot of signals. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe I shouldn't do this. And so uh, I, I would say that the biggest one is uh, to be willing to take those risks, be uh, really think through worst case scenarios, which often turn out to not be as bad as you think they are. Uh, and I think a lot of people are probably experiencing this during quarantine, but like, worst case scenario is your company fails and like you have to go live at your parents' house. It's like not the end of the world. <laughs> uh, so uh, that would be, that would definitely be one. So in making this sort of switch from, you know, the social pressure of finance, what sort of uh, resources did you look to? Was it more people? Was it books? Was it, was it papers? You know, like what allowed you to learn more about entrepreneurship at that time? Uh, and was it directly entrepreneurship out of college or, or was it something else? Yeah, I would definitely say books are an important one. Um, I, I probably read five books total from the time I was born until I graduated college. I, uh, I was very much just like read the spark notes, try to skip ahead. And I'm pretty sure all of the five books I read were in the Lord of the Rings series. So definitely was not a big reader. Um, now I, I, I've, I read about two books a week. Uh, and I've been doing that for probably seven years. Um, the, the value that you get from books, I think that's a, it's a Bismarck quote that, uh, uh, any fool can learn from experience. Wisdom comes from learning from others experience <laughs> and 
books are a great way of learning from other people's experience and their mistakes. Um, so uh, books are a really great resource for this stuff. I would say the probably the bigger resource is other people. Um, if I could, if I could go back into my college years, I would, I would have made an effort to have breakfast or lunch with every person in my class and just like get to know who the other people are in your universe. Um, bring you back to, to my friend, Andrew Jordan from Twilio that I mentioned almost every job that he has had since college was through a connection from somebody that he knew from college. Um, and so just like building those friendships and just, it, it is, it is often surprising to me how just having one of these icebreaker conversations, like a 15 minute lunch with somebody one time in college means that five years later, you can now approach them and ask them for something in the future if you need to. Um, so you'd be surprised how important those relationships are. Yeah. And you also, that's a great piece of advice. And you also mentioned, uh, projects later past college mm -hmm. how do you recommend going about sort of figuring different uh things to work on like those projects that you were working on before levels were those all companies that you were working on or were some of them helping other people's companies like um how do you think about that uh management of time yeah it was kind of all of the above some were like projects for other companies that needed something built um some were my own ideas. Um, they were kind of all across the board. The, the one, it might be worth looking into uh, uh, the way that TruePill was formed. Um, Sid at TruePill um, had a very methodical structure about building a company. And if I remember correctly, he basically just found a pharmacist and just like grilled him for months on like, what are all of your problems? And just like followed him around. It's like this, I know that the pharmacy industry is huge. I know there are all kinds of problems. And he just followed this guy around. It's like trying to figure out where the gaps were. Um, and at a certain point he had developed enough knowledge to understand like, okay, this, these are the core problems with this industry and this is how I'll solve them. So um, market discovery is the thing to really focus on. It's like, what is a really large industry that people complain about all the time? Um, and then find somebody who understands those problems deeply and really understand who your customers are and, and go from there. Yeah, really interesting. You mentioned a little bit about um, minimalism <laughs> um, in terms of all you have is in a carry-on bag upstairs. Yeah. I, <laughs> I find that a little bit hard to believe, but yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about that and um, how that has helped you, the philosophy behind that. Yeah, I mean, we could, we could talk about this for three hours, but the, I think the biggest one is that uh, freedom is, there's both the numerator and the denominator when it comes to economic freedom. Uh, the numerator is the amount of money that you make and the denominator is the amount of money that you spend. And if you spend a lot less, you'd be surprised at how much easier your life is <laughs> and how many more choices you have. It's like the, you could just choose not to work for like a year and do whatever you want. Uh, you can choose to like go live in Estonia, which is a place that I've been uh, or Argentina, you can just go do that and nobody can tell you not to. Um, people often refer to things like FU money. And for some people, that's like $10 million. Well, if you don't spend very much money, that might be like 
$100,000. <laughs> so if you, if you keep things really uh, low burn, uh, it gives you tremendous flexibility in how you spend your time. Like I don't, I've never taken a job based on how much money it paid me. It's not strictly true. I've taken, there've been some consulting projects where I really didn't want to do it. And so I said like, I'll do it for, I would normally charge like, I don't know, $5,000. And I said, 50,000. And they said, yes. I was like, all right, I can spend two weeks for $50,000. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, I can justify that. But um, in general, like anything with like long commitments, like I, I've never felt that I needed to take a job for financial reasons. And that's mostly just because I, uh, I've been very, uh, I've been very particular about how I spend money and uh, keeping my personal burn very low. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people spending money um, equates to happiness in some way. And it's great that you don't have that sort of complex, Uh, but in a different way, like how do you stay mentally fit? How do you find these outlets to have your own time and de-stress and the very stressful job that you have? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't think my job is very stressful or at least it's not for me. Um, one of the biggest ways that I, I, I budget my time pretty aggressively. I have a really good team that does most of the work and, uh, I, I have a lot of control over my own calendar. I think a lot of people feel that if they're not involved in something that it's going to fail and that bad things will happen. And, um, I, I found that if you, if you hire the right people, and you control your time and your calendar, um, that the, the stress levels go down quite a lot. Another thing, probably, you know, there, there are a handful of like pivot points in my life. And one of the, one of the best things that I decided to do, I think this was in 2013, I, uh, I decided to cut off the news entirely. So I haven't consumed any news in almost seven or eight years now, uh, whether written, spoken, uh, television, any, no form of news whatsoever. And, uh, I found that almost within about a month, I physically felt different. My stress levels, my mental health just like dramatically improved. And I, I physically felt different from having uh, abstained from news for that long. That's really interesting. And then in terms of like finding free time, like Mm -hmm. you said, you read two books a week, you have control of your calendar. Mm -hmm. Do you leave time to think? just and read is, is reading your thinking time or do you have other ways to just like sit down and think about the ideas kind of going back to putting what's in your mind into an actual idea and onto paper? I do it a lot. I, so I block off all day Tuesday and Thursday uh, for no meetings. So Tuesdays and Thursdays are like deep work focused time. Uh, I also do a think week once a quarter. So basically I go off grid with my brother typically Actually, this next week is my think week for this quarter, which I'm excited about in Tahoe. And we block off the entire week, no meetings, no calls, uh, just like deep focused thought. So some of that's like deep introspection on aspects of my personal life. Um, Some of it's deep introspection on like something about company strategy, but just detaching for some period of time to get perspective, I've just found is incredibly helpful. Um, And then a little bit more of a fun question before we have to leave. I usually go with like favorite TV show or, or favorite podcast, but I'm switching it up here. Do you have 
any favorite books uh, that you've read recently to recommend to our listeners? Yeah. One of the books that I, I read it somewhat recently, I think it was a year ago, but it was really, really was a positive effect was uh, Nonviolent Communication, which is a, it's a kind of a classic book on how to communicate effectively on the like emotional spectrum. Uh, something that I've historically not been very good at. And uh, I think a better title might have been Non-Threatening Communication. How do you communicate things in a way where people don't immediately get defensive? And so you can have difficult conversations in a very productive and positive way. So I would definitely recommend it. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. Uh, I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too. Sure thing. Thank you.